0: Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. We're going to continue on week nine of Philippians, and we're going to start in Philippians chapter two, verses 13 through 18. I'll read them out loud. You can read them silently along with us as we, uh, in your notes. If you need some notes sir, we can get you some in the back. Here we go. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then, on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless." But I will rejoice, even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share the joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. There's three things that kind of jumped out of me from this passage I want to kind of draw our attention to this week. So hopefully our roots will grow deeper in relationship with God. The core foundation of our faith will be strengthened, and we will bear fruit from uh, from what's being presented from us uh, to us here today, so I want to. Uh, the number one in your notes is uh, the transformed life. The transformed life. <clears throat> I want to focus on verse thirteen real quick for this for this first point. God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. So. Um, there's, I'm going to kind of break this down in kind of an elementary fashion. So there's evidence that God is working in us. We have the fruit of salvation. We have the fruit of the Spirit. That means there, are, there is evidence in our life and in our actions and our thoughts and our minds and everything that we are saved and that we are filled with the Spirit of God. We have been made a new creature and a new creation, a creation. But there is further evidence that God's work continues past that moment in our life. And the first thing that that um, is, is evidence Paul talks about right here is our desires begin to change. It's next line your notes. Our desires begin to change. Now, um, as I read, as I kind of wrote this down, I wanted to spend just a second here and talk about what kind of change. Um, I don't know about you, but if you've been around long enough or alive long enough to pay, ever pay attention to a politician, which, you know, it's debatable if you should or not, <clears throat> but if you've ever heard a politician, almost every politician on some level, state, local, national, you know, regional level, they all try to present this idea of change that I, if you vote for me, things are going to change. If you give me your vote and I get in there and I get in power, things are going to change. We're going to change. We're going to change. And people, you know, like it's like that old movie, Hercules, Hercules, change, change, change. You know, they all want to change, right? (laughs) And so why is a politician never uh, specific about the change he's talking about or that she's talking about? They're vague on purpose because when all of us in this room, if I were to ask you, what's something that's in our city that needs to change right now? And don't say it out loud, but just think of it. Every person will probably come up with something a little bit different. And when someone says, we're going to have change, what happens is the person who hears that says, I'm going to take that and I'm going to assume that they're thinking what I'm thinking. And I'm going to assume that the change they're talking about is a change that I think needs to happen. And what we found out through various elections and over time and throughout history is that people who talk about change, they change things, but it's not always for the better. So just because we're talking about believers as believers in Christ that we want to change, we got to be very specific on what we want to change and how we want to change. Let's, um, let's pretend for a second if y'all have been, um, I think all the, probably the guys in school, the kids in school probably remember this um, a little bit better than the rest of us who have been out of school for, you know, three or four years. But if you can picture a compass, there's north, east, south, and west, right? So let's just pretend that north is the path that God has laid out for us that we're supposed to follow. We're supposed to choose the path of north. But... Let's just say that somebody kind of walks up and says, you know what? I really don't want to follow that way. I'm going to do my own thing. And they begin to walk west. West. All of us look at them and be like, hey, man, north is the best way to travel. And they're like, no, I want to go down this, this path that's towards the west. And we're telling them, hey, if you go down this direction, this is direction of California. And it's nothing but crazy folks out in California. It's a joke if you're a listener from California. But there, there's nothing but trouble if you head out this direction, right? So you're going to go this direction, and they go out this direction for days or weeks or months or even years. And then somewhere along the journey, they realize, I should not have gone this way. I should not have chosen to walk this direction with my life. And so they declare to all of us, I want to make a change. And all of us who have been telling them to go north, go north, go north, follow God's direction, we all applaud thinking they're going to now go north. But they make a different change and they just walk east. It doesn't matter if they walked west or they walked east. They're still not walking north. They're still not following the trajectory that God is asking for them to go. But they made a change and I want change, and they need to make a change, and there needs to be a difference. We have to be very specific on the change that we're after. Because there's a scripture in in the New Testament that talks about wide is the pathway to hell, and narrow is the pathway to life. It doesn't mean that hell's got a bigger door than heaven. It means that there's a million ways to do something wrong that all end in death and destruction. But there is one way, faith in Christ, that leads to eternal life. So when we're talking about change, we got to be very specific. I just don't want to change. I want to change in the way that God has designed me to change. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Does this mean that you were just hopeless and now you have hope? That you were broke before and now you're going to have money? You didn't have a job before, but I got saved and now I'm going to have a job? No. That's not what he's getting at here. Hopefully those things change for you. But what he's getting at here is there's a new life a new God-centered, God-focused, God-fueled, God-powered life. We can say that a new life has new desires, new purpose, new thoughts, new perspectives, and new attitudes, and all that would be true. But the God-changed life, the one that Paul is telling us to pursue, is one with God-desires fulfilling God's purpose, having God's thoughts, looking at things through God's perspective, and having God's attitude. We can't just change. We got to change the way he wants us to change. Letter B in your notes. The second evidence that God is working in us. We have the ability to do what God is leading us to do. We have the ability to do what God is leading us to do. I have yet to meet any person who's given their life to Christ, they've gotten saved, they've made made uh, Jesus the Lord of their life, and all of a sudden, there's like their hair color changes, or they walk around in like a white robe and a blue sash, like we used to back in the day in the human video days, or you know their hair grows really long, and they have this countenance, and they float around. No, the change happens where? Here. But when that change happens here, it starts here and begins to bear fruit out here where everybody can see it. So next line in your notes, when God works on the inside of us, we have the divine power to fulfill his plan on the outside of us. When he begins working on the inside of us, he gives us a power. Now, this is not like Power Rangers, you know, like Purple Ranger, and then all of a sudden the lightning hits them, and they're, you know, they have all this power, you know, and they start singing the song and riding motorcycles around and killing the fake dinosaurs and stuff, like the bad guys. I'm not talking about that. You don't have that power. The power is the spirit of God that comes to reside inside of you. You now have access to him and he can work through you through the same power that raised Christ from the dead is now operating in you. There is an ability to do from the inside on the outside what God is calling you to do. That is evidence that God's working in you. Romans 12, 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Paul is looking at these, he's not looking, he's writing to these people that established a church in Philippi, which was built for... The retired Roman soldiers, and he's saying there is an there's, a, there's an inbred, embedded mindset that happens in these soldiers of Rome. They have been conditioned to follow the, the leader. They've been conditioned to follow the emperor. They've been conditioned to fall in line. And he's telling the people that are in this city, no, your mind has, even though it may have been conditioned to think a certain way, it has to re- be reconditioned by God. Because why? We get transformed into a new person by changing the way we think. The definition of the word repentance is to change your mind. What he's saying here is you are going to be changed when you repent, when you change your mind, when God changes the way you think. When he changes the way we think, look what happens next in our notes. The old thrill of self-satisfying goals the old thrill of self satisfying goals begins to fade, and the new thrill of fulfilling God's purpose rises. The new thrill of fulfilling God's purpose rises. When God transforms us by the renewing of our mind into a new creation and we become the one who is, who is um, uh, or God, that, how we find out God's will, which is good and pleasing and perfect for us, it changes the desire in us, the primary desire to serve ourselves or serve God. He is giving them the ability to accomplish Not their purpose, but God's purpose. There's a big difference. He is not giving them the power to pursue fame, to build their own kingdom, to create an overflow of abundance, to lavish us with materialistic prosperity. He's not giving that ability to us to do those things. The spirit of God begins to give us a supernatural divine ability to accomplish his purpose. And the, the evidence of the transformation is that our main thrust, our main goal, if God is really working in us, the, the effort, the creativity, the ideas, the time, the, the money, the, everything that we spent looking at this thing that would build us up is now like, I don't even really want to do that anymore. God's given me this, and I'm going to put all of that into this area. I know a guy from um, way back in the day who um, we watched grow up as a worship leader and um he he got um uh he he was singing everywhere he worked at this massive church out in the west part of the valley, and thousands and thousands of people in campuses and everything and I heard one day that uh, you know he left the church. I thought, oh, he must have went somewhere else. Nope. He quit doing music because something inside of him changed, and a heart that beat for hurting children caused him to leave the platform and the job that he had and the notoriety that he had in front of these thousands of people and go to a foreign country and set up adoption agencies and orphanages to get those children off the street and connected to Christian families who would raise them in the knowledge and the path of Christ. The music wasn't bad, but he had this gift. He had this thing. He wanted to go pursue and he went and pursued it, and everybody was clapping. But as they were clapping, there was something that changed in his heart. And the evidence of the things that were changing in his heart was that I have to leave this because there's something that God has put in me to do that will not let me go. And the evidence of that God, it was continually working in him, was he dropped it all and went and help the least of these. My thrill of fulfilling my goal or the eternal privilege, the eternal thrill of fulfilling God's purpose, it's evidence that he's working in us, a transformed life. Point number two, the shining life, not the shining movie don't go down that road with me. That's weird. The shining life. <clears throat> Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Do everything without complaining and arguing. We could just say those, that line over and over and over again in our culture and then just pray and dismiss and like all of us repent and go home. Do everything without complaining and arguing. Do everything without complaining and arguing. But he continues, so, we, so will we. So that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining bright, like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Now, one of the things we have to remember about Scripture is that Paul is not writing to uh, believers in 2021 living in um, Arizona. He's writing to people that live in the Middle East within a few decades after Christ has has been uh, crucified, buried, and resurrected. He's writing to them. So we have to realize when we're reading scripture, and this is gonna be a great example of this, we can't take our idea and our mindset of 2021 and apply it to the scripture. We have to kind of get back into their time frame and see how they would, look, they would look at this passage. And it's very important because when we talk about complaining, we complain about things as members of the most wealthiest, prosperous society to ever exist in human history. When we complain, it sounds like this. My Uber Eats driver was supposed to be here at 6.45, and it's 6.49. I am starving. Where is this person? Why are they late? It says on the screen here, 6.45, but it's 6.49, and I am famished. My refrigerator is full of food that I don't want to cook, and so I, may, I tapped on a screen and had people custom order food that I didn't have to grow that had chicken that I didn't have to pluck the feathers off or kill or cook or debone. I didn't have to to grow the vegetables in the garden that are going to make up my Chipotle salad that I wanted the Uber Eats driver to bring to me. I didn't have to chop the onions or make the pico de gallo. I didn't even have to drive over to to Brian and Sammy's house because they probably have pico on tap because of their restaurant. Fuego Tacos are the best things I've ever eaten in my life. That's a side note. But I didn't have to do any of that. I didn't have to make the guacamole that they're gonna put for an extra $90 on top of that thing at Chipotle. I didn't have to, I didn't have to melt the cheese on the queso for the tortilla chips. And then I didn't have to put gas in my car or even drive to a place or even talk to a human being to tell them this is all I wanted. It went through the air to another location where I'm not, and they are going through the air. To to pick up something else and then have somebody drop it off to me. This is what we complain about. Paul is not writing to the Uber Eats generation. He's writing to people who do not have the ability to, you know, we're not going to come into the office and say we're just going to log in and work from home. No. He's writing to people who don't have a lot of mobility. They don't have a lot of options. They have to go till the ground or there's not going to be any harvest or food for them. And he's talking to them about a different thing of complaining than what we look at today. Because if I had to read the scripture and be like, do everything without complaining and arguing. Okay, I guess I'll just not yell at the Uber Eats guy. I don't know why, like... I I think that's annoying. I I think I think that's annoying to me. And so this is the most annoying voice I can come up with. So I kind of correlated the two. So my bad. But so um, uh, this is what we think of when we're talking about complaining. But we can't put our 2021 idea on the scripture. We have to get deep as we can understand to grab the richness of what he's trying to say. Because this definition of complaining is also in another translation, um, uh, translated to the word murmuring. I don't know about you, um, but it's been a very long time, maybe never, that I've used the word murmuring in my vocabulary. So when I saw murmuring, I'm like, that sounds worse, but I have no idea what it means. So I went back to the original Word that was used here for complaining and murmuring. I'm not even going to try to uh, attempt to say it. It's in Greek: goggusmos. You can look it up if you want to at your home and put it in your notes. But here's the definition. Here's the definition: a secret displeasure not openly admitted. A secret displeasure not openly admitted. This gives the word complaining and murmuring a little bit more of a sinister edge to me. I'm not talking about griping at my fast food order. I'm talking about I am harboring in my heart a secret displeasure that I won't dare tell all of these people out here. But when I get one-on-one with somebody, I'll say, whatever I'm displeased about, and begin to reveal the secret displeasure that I don't dare openly admit. Why do we do this? It's because for that displeasure to live, it has to have agreement. I got to give that displeasure oxygen. So if I go to Christian and I say, man, man, I am going to have to, I've been carrying this. I just got to like, just let me vent real quick. Anybody ever said that? And we throw out our complaint and he goes, you know what? I didn't want to say anything, but you are so right. Then what happens is, is my complaint gets agreement and it's like injecting life and oxygen so that that secret displeasure can continue to live in us. That's what he's talking about when we're talking about complaining. Let's look at what that action, that complaining points to. Next three dots in your notes, the bullet points. Complaining points to entitlement. What does that sound like? Why aren't things going the way I want them to go? Why did I have to go like this? Why did I get this family? Why am I in this scenario? I thought my life would be different by now. Why can't I have that life or be like them? I deserve to have that, not them. Entitlement. What else does a complaining point to? Second bullet point, private anger. Private anger. What's that sound like? I can't stand those people. And you only say that after you get in the car and drive home from seeing them. Private anger. (laughs) What's the third thing it points to? Dishonesty. What does that sound like? I just said something positive to be nice, but I don't like them at all. Does, do you like my outfit? It's awesome. Go home and roll your eyes and be like, oh, my gosh, they look like a blimp. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> what? it's dishonest. It's dishonest. And that complaining shows us, next line in our notes, complaining reveals the fruit of our heart is opposite of what the Lord builds in us when we are submitted to him. Look, I get it. You want to throw some at me right now. I totally understand. (laughs) Somebody take your shoe off and just huck it right at me right now if you could. I get it. This was a hard pill for me to swallow too. Why does this matter? Because look what Paul says. Do everything without complaining and arguing so no one can criticize you. What he's saying is if you're revealing this secret. Anger, this this secret displeasure. You're not going to openly admit to anyone, to other people. They're going to look at you and think that what you represent. You talk about Jesus. You talk about the Lord. You bring in the Bible. You listen to worship music at your desk. You you got the Jesus bumper sticker. You've got the turn or burn, get sanctified or French fried stuff on your car, whatever it is. Like like I'm all like like I'm I'm the Christian guy. I'm the Christian lady. I'm good. And then all of a sudden, you start complaining. What that does is it shows them they, have an, they now have an open door to criticize you and what you believe. <clears throat> this is important because our culture needs authentic representation of the gospel. <clears throat> the world that we live in, the culture we live in today is trying to redefine everything. They want to redefine what is right and wrong. They want to redefine basic premises, men and women. What is marriage, love, hate, and on down the line. And what happens is the more that they redefine these terms and redefine things that used to be looked at as as vices, they now look at them as virtue. Let me give you an example. Today... If you are someone who is eaten up with envy, you're applauded. Use that envy, they don't say the word envy, use that feeling of lack of abundance to fuel you to go live the kind of life that you want to live. And people are trying to take envy and not make it a vice, but label it as a virtue. Scripture warns us about those people who try to take call evil good and good evil. You are living and watching it every day happen in front of you in our culture. As these people in the culture begin to, to redefine terms, they're going to pressure you as a believer and pressure the quote unquote churches that are around. They're going to pressure believers or people who are in a church, pastors, leaders, worship leaders, whoever it is. Anyone who holds the title Christian, they're going to try to pressure them into accepting these new redefined terms, these new redefined levels of morality that stand in opposition to Scripture. Dude, come on. You're not so old-fashioned that you just think you can't sleep with anybody till you're married, right? Like, who does that anymore? We're just evolved past that as a society or a culture. And they're going to make pressure, put pressure on you in many ways to try and conform to a new redefined definition of morality, what is good, what is right, what is wrong, and what is acceptable. Next line in your notes, we should not give in to the pressure of our culture. We should not give in to the pressure of our culture. We do not have the task of remaking the Bible or Christianity into something else that people will accept. When we compromise the truth of the gospel to try to get people to come to the church building, we disfigure the truth and shape a false gospel that won't save anyone. How many believers in this room would, if I gave you a Bible, a roll of tape, and some scissors, would cut that thing up and try to build a false idol out of it? nobody. you like, what, what are you talking about, man? I would, that's the word of God. I'm not going to cut that thing up and build an idol out. That's dumb. Right. When we conform to things that are opposite of scripture and say, that's okay. We can just kind of just think about other pages besides the one that, that, that give us the definitions of right and wrong and moral behavior and what we should do. We're just going to pass over those things. And we'll just talk about the rest of it. When we do that, that's what we're doing. We're re, we're using the substance of God's word to form a false idol and rewrite a false gospel. Um, I'm older than many of you in this room. Um, See, I fixed it. But I watched this movie called Sister Act. Anybody ever seen this movie, Sister Act? Um, The star of it is in the movie, the main star is Whoopi Goldberg. If you don't know who Whoopi Goldberg is, it doesn't matter. (laughs) But um, (laughs) um, you can find her very easily. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg in this movie was a, um, a Las Vegas singer. And she was like a show, like a... Like, she was like a showgirl, not from like a, like, she just was like doing like, um, like big concerts and singing and all that kind of stuff, concerts and stuff in, in Vegas. And in the, uh, in the movie, she witnesses a murder. And the police are like, they want her to testify, but the trial's a month away, so they have to put her in witness protection. And they put her in witness protection at a, uh, in the middle of a group of nuns. So she goes to a Catholic church and she dresses up and pretends to be a nun. A Vegas showgirl is now a nun in the movie. It's hilarious. And so, you know, nobody's coming to their church because it's dead and old and it smells and it's all old folks and stuff. And, and she goes in there and kind of lights a fire under the, the nuns and they start to have this kind of more upbeat music and this music program starts going. And so at the end, all these people start coming in and, you know, she revitalizes the people coming to the church because of the music, right? And she turns and makes a statement in the movie to the priest because the priest has reservations like, should we be doing this? You know, is this is this following along where the the church would have us believe and what God wants from us and all this kind of stuff? And she makes a statement that I think is very is a very clear reflection of what the culture views the church as today. She turns to the priest and says, I'm in Vegas doing shows and you're here in the church. And though we're in different places, our goal is the same. My goal and your goal is to put butts in the seats. For a long time, the quote unquote church bought into the idea that I got to put people in the building to show people the church show so they'll come back and maybe talk about Jesus and they'll start living better and they'll have a little bit better moral compass and they'll maybe drop something in the offering plate and then we can tell people, oh, they came down and prayed the prayer and numbers and we got, you know, all these people got saved last week and I don't know where they are going forward or we didn't disciple them all, but they got saved, yay! And everyone claps as if we're doing our job because they think... The job of the church is to put butts in the seats. Next line in your notes. Filling our church building with people to watch the church show and dilute the gospel of Jesus Christ is not the goal. That's the goal of the show. The goal to come in here is yes to do things with excellence, yes to put our best foot forward, yes to vacuum the carpet in the building that we rent um, to make sure that it, it, it's good, yes to put the signs out so when people come they can they, they can participate, yes to pay attention to the the sound and the video like the the cut rights do so faithfully every week to come in here and, and 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 make sure that people online can watch the video and yes to do what Jules does to keep the words up and yes to everybody who's doing worship and practicing throughout the week. All of that needs to be done because we're giving God our best. But the goal of that is to point to Jesus, not to get people in the building and feel like we've done something. Because if we have to dilute the gospel to get people in the building, we are doing nothing. It doesn't matter. Our goal, next line in your notes, is to reflect the light of Christ the light and life of Christ to the world and share the pure gospel. When people twist the truth, we must not feel pressure to conform. We must remember the world is full of crooked and perverse people. Matt, how can you say that? Um, We just read that. That's not me. That's Paul. Live clean and innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. When we conform our belief and the gospel to the whims of wicked and perverse people, we reflect the values of wicked and perverse people. We are not reflecting and shining bright the light of the gospel. When we conform to the world, we no longer reflect Christ. We need to have everybody in this room shine bright wherever you go, not walk into the building and turn the light on and think, oh, this is where all the light is, so I need to come here. No, you are supposed to be the light where you are every single day. And we come back here to gather, to help, to recharge, to pray, to worship, to learn more about God's word so we can go back out there and shine brighter. And what I'm telling you is not popular. It's not. But what I'm telling you is what scripture says even the next part of the the ver- or the next part of this passage verse 16 refers to to light in in a way that I didn't even see verse 16 hold firmly to the word of life and on the day of Christ's return I will be proud that he not that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless at first thought when I when I read those words hold firmly Hold firmly to the word of life. I thought, again, I don't know why I'm on a movie kick today, like in a really old, like 90s, like terrible 90s movie kicks. But I thought of the movie Twister. Anybody seen that movie about the tornadoes and stuff? (laughs) At the end, what happens? Like there's a tornado that comes over like the main characters and they're like strapped to this, you know, the metal pipe in the ground. And they're like holding on for dear life. And so I'm thinking of like an anchor and being tied to my Bible. And I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to hold on to it. But as I dug in a little bit deeper to some of the commentaries on this passage, it doesn't mean that at all. Listen to what it says, and I put it in your notes. That phrase, hold firmly to the word of life, means this. Adam Clark's biblical commentary. I'll read it out loud for us. It's an allusion, some think, to those towers which were built at the entrance of harbors on which fires were kept during the night to direct ships into the port. Genuine Christians by their holy lives and conversation are the means of directing others not only how to uh, escape those dangers to which they are exposed on the tempestuous ocean of human life, but also of leading them into the haven of eternal safety and rest. So think about this with me real quick. Again, we're having to look at it from their perspective. So on the harbor, there's these two giant towers. And on top of the towers, there are fires lit. There's light on top of the towers to show people where the entrance is and know where where land is when the the sea is getting too rough to navigate. Those are primitive versions of what we know as... Anybody? Anybody? A giant, t- uh, what? Lighthouse. That's a primitive version of lighthouse. It's the next line of your notes. The word picture here is one of a lighthouse. The next biblical commentary is not a joke. It is Matthew Poole's biblical commentary. This is not me. I did not write a biblical commentary last week in my off time. This is a guy that lived in the 17 or 1800s that took my name. Darn it. <laughs> But he wrote a biblical commentary and he says something very, very um, uh, key here. And I wanted to review it. Carefully bearing before you and steadfastly showing, not by your, only by your profession, but conversation, the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you keep the light, the fire, bright and burning in your life, you don't just say you are a believer, you put it into practice, into your activities, into your conversation, into your life, and it shines bright for others to see we need to live a transformed life and a shining life. Point number three, last one in your notes. The serving life. The serving life. Philippians 2 17 through 18. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. When I looked at this verse, there's something that kind of threw me off. And I'm just going to, I'll just be honest. I'll tell you what stupid thing ran through my mind when I saw liquid offering. Pour it out like a liquid offering. Like, I thought, like, one of those old, like, gangster movies, like, when a guy dies and they take a beer and pour it out. You know, like, pour one out for the homies or whatever. You know what I mean? I was like, that's the first thing that just came in my mind. That's the, see, I, I don't know if I should tell you that because you're like, this guy's an idiot, right? Like, but it's just the first thing that hit my mind. And then I thought, well, that's not it, right? He needs to, like... Take a like a cup of water or something, and he pours it out on the ground as an offering to God. Well, I don't remember pouring out water like a as a thing, as an offering to God. What is a liquid offering? So I dug into this a little bit, and it's very, very interesting what I found. A liquid offering, also called a drink offering, it's in your notes, is a reference to an Old Testament tradition of pouring wine on the altar of the Lord before the sacrifice was made. I knew what the sacrifice was. I knew what the altar was. It's like this big, this big pile of stones or some kind of shelf built with stone and, and bricks and rocks to put a sacrifice on. But before they would do that, in some instances, not all of them, but in some instances, they would take wine and they would pour it over this hot... The, the, the fires burning underneath the altar, they had poured over this hot rocks or these this hot altar, and it would begin to um uh begin to dissolve and begin to kind of burn on the altar, and it produced this sweet, sweet smell. And it was their way of saying, I'm going to give. Something that is valuable, that is great, that is worthwhile to God. And then they would sacrifice. Next on your notes, the wine used for the drink offering was also composed of quote unquote strong wine. Strong wine. Strong wine means undiluted. Next, that's the next line of your note: strong wine, wine equals undiluted. <clears throat> if someone had made wine because they're not running down to Costco and going through the 900 bottles of wine they have there to pick which one they want for dinner that night, right, they're not in this culture, they have to have it made. And if you have two jars of wine that you're going to use for dinner that night, but you have all of a sudden, your friends invited some friends, and then they invited some folks, and you're kind of now stressing like, what am I going to do? I only have enough wine for the people that are here. Well in some instances, what they would do is take a portion of the wine, like half of it, pour it in another bottle, and then fill the rest of it up with water. And it wasn't the, the greatest, best wine they had, but at least they had wine for everybody. It was diluted. Andrew Langham, in the biblical, his biblical commentary, made one more um, point on wine, and it was this, wine is also a symbol of joy, both to God and to man. It's the next line in your notes. It's a symbol of joy, both to God and to man. So when Paul says, I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God... He is making a reference to the Old Testament. In this particular drink offering, the reference is in the book of Numbers. You can read about it in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he is pointing the picture to. And here's what he's saying. It's next on your notes. Paul lived a full, undiluted, uncompromising life that was full of joy from fulfilling God's purpose. And he's encouraging every other believer to do the same. That liquid offering thing, man, really threw me. Really hit me because I thought, how many more things have I read that I don't truly understand the depth and the richness of them? Because in six short verses, Paul is telling us, he's telling the the people in Philippi, the believers in Philippi, along with us today, who are believers in Christ, he's telling us, you got to live a transformed life, you need to live a shining life, and you need to live a serving life. How do I pour my life out for God? I follow his commands. I love him, I love people, and I commit to the purity of the gospel, telling people about Jesus. <clears throat> I put two questions, reflection questions, at the bottom of your sheet that you can take home with you, and I want you just to kind of ponder, and I want to kind of read them one at a time. My guess is you've probably already read both of them, but I would just like to read them one at a time real quick. What does an undiluted life look like to you? When you look at, understand that we're supposed to be pouring our life out as a liquid offering, a drink offering, and exactly what that means, what would that life look like to you? You know what? I'm kind of wasting some time here doing fill in the blank. I could really be doing something else to further the gospel, promote what I'm doing, live my purpose, give more to God. But there's something over here that I kinda just engage in all the time and it's I don't know that's really bad, but if I'm honest, it's kinda like I'm pouring water into my life. I'm kinda diluting my time. That would be how I would probably answer the question for myself. But as I wrote that question, I kind of felt a prompting to ask a second question, and it's the next one on your page. And I think it's the more important question. What does an undiluted life look like to God? Because when I ask what does it look like to me, I compare the things that I know I'm doing wrong or that I know I'm kind of wasting time here and there. I compare that to what I could be doing, so I'm comparing me to me. That's not what I'm supposed to be doing. When I ask, what does an undiluted life look like to God, I compare myself to his word, and then all of the cracks shine through. What does that undiluted drink offering life that Paul is, is, is encouraging us to pursue look like?